The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Welcome back to the show. Today, I have a special guest, Dr. David Baker. David is a neuroimmunologist based in the UK, and he focuses his recent research on neuroprotection in many neurological-based diseases, including multiple sclerosis. I've got a lengthy but super interesting episode for you today, where David is going to dive into the science behind cannabis, stem cell, and remyelination in multiple sclerosis, essentially giving us answers as to whether these treatments work, and if so, how. David and I first met when he was our Missing Link guest speaker of the month. He talked to our group about all things vaccines, anything from the flu vaccine, shingles vaccine, COVID, you name it. And he gave my Missing Link members education on how those vaccines interact with various disease-modifying therapies. So... After that guest speaker call, I knew I wanted to have him back and talk to him on my podcast so I could ask him even more questions. And I'm so excited for you to be able to listen in on this conversation. So before we get into the nitty gritty details of updates on all things medication, I want to break the ice with a random question from my interview deck. Are you ready? No, but I'm sure... (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go for it. Your random question is, have you ever been kicked out of anything? If so, what? Oh my gosh. Uh, I got kicked out of class once actually. Yeah. Oh, what class was it? Well, well, um, what what it was, was um, it was a sports actually and um, really hot day and we were supposed to be playing football and um, my friend and I and, and another friend we thought we'd go swimming instead. So we actually went swimming and got caught. And as a consequence of that, we actually got kicked out of sport for uh, about six months and we had to clean the rooms every day. Oh my so gosh. That's, that was a punishment for being, wow. being a naughty boy. Oh my gosh. That's, yeah. That's too funny. I love that story. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> All right. So getting right into it, I'm going to ask you a question that I've been wondering for a while as well. And I guess I should start by saying that we were first introduced when you were a Missing Link guest speaker, and we talked about all things related to immunizations, booster shots uh, for COVID-19, just all things medication related um, around flu and lots of things that people with MS and otherwise run into. And we didn't have enough time to get into other areas. So that's why I wanted to interview you here as well. So my first question is first and foremost, can you explain to our listeners who you are, where you're from and a little bit of your background? 
Okay, so my name is uh, David Baker, and my background is I'm a, a, a scientist rather than a, than a clinical doctor, um, but I work in a group um, in London uh, with, with clinicians. So our um, aim is really to translate ideas from the basic science and then move them towards the clinic, obviously with the idea of um, you know, treating people, uh, and our focus has largely been on multiple sclerosis. So when I was kind of a, a young boy, which was a, a million years ago, um, I kind of was working um, on kind of skin diseases. And, it, and at the time, we had a, my boss was interested in multiple sclerosis, and he had a job for somebody to go into multiple sclerosis. And really, I kind of developed a model system to start looking for treatments. And I've been doing that roughly oh, for too many years. And so kind of, I've been doing that for a long time. I've been doing it in different places around London. And I, I kind of linked up with um, my clinical body. And, and the idea is we've to try and take ideas in, into the clinic. Now, I guess my claim to fame um, was actually, we were the first pe people to show that cannabis was actually of use as a symptom control. Now, obviously I never inhaled, um, but um, what we did is we kind of uncovered the underlying biology that would explain why cannabis could do some of the things it was doing in multiple sclerosis. And of course, that was then the forerunner for um, some uh, drugs that have actually been approved. Now, obviously there's kind of the kind of the smoked recreational cannabis, for example, but we've kind of really focused our attention towards the medicinal side. And really, I haven't really worked with cannabis very much because we're interested in the biology and so we don't need to work with the illicit drugs we work uh, on the the targets of the drugs so we actually try and understand how it works and as a consequence of that we also found that maybe it would affect nerve damage as well so that's kind of one element that we, we we've taken along we we did it in a, um, a clinical trial as well so some of the ideas we've had over the years have have, have actually gone into clinical trials some of them have failed some of them still on 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 the on the um on the drawing board and some of them actually were, were slowly moving you know forward so i mean the thing I, you have to realize i guess when you have a, a new drug it takes an awful long time i'm sure you're aware how how painfully slow it is but it, it generally takes about 14 or 15 years so i uh, developed a drug really from the cannabis drug was, you know, how to take the benefit from cannabis, but remove the kind of high away from the equation. And that's kind of taken 14 years of my life so far. Um, and we're still kind of uh, carrying on with that. So um, we'll have to see where it goes at the moment. So um, yeah. that's kind of my, my, my background is really trying to come up with treatments. That's kind of what I do. That's great. And I'm really excited for myself and my listeners to hear more of this scientific side of things mm. from a developer, which is really cool. For cannabis, what did the research show? You know, I know I have a lot of clients who will use cannabis in some way. Sometimes it's a salve that they'll rub on their skin or mm. other forms. And some people feel a big difference where it's other people don't feel much of a difference. Why is that? Well, I think, you know, we're all different. Um, and I, I guess when I uh, was working with the guys who were developing it clinically, they would say, 
for 25% of people, it works really well. 50% of people, it's okay. And for 25% of people, it doesn't seem to do much. So I think sometimes with things like cannabis, you've almost got to try it and then see if it works for you. And if it doesn't, then you, you know, kind of stop it. Now, I guess the question, what we were looking at is, is how did it work? And obviously within the cannabis molecule, there's lots and lots of different chemicals. And some of them we know cause the high and some of them cause other, other events. And essentially what we, we were doing is trying to work out what in the cannabis um, um, causes the, the therapeutic effect and, and how is it mediated? Now, for many years, people thought that cannabis kind of um, just would seep through into the cells and that's how it would work because it's kind of very fat soluble. So it kind of gets everywhere. Um, but probably in the 80s, they, they found that um, there were kind of receptors. So what happens is the cannabis binds to the receptor and it's a receptor um, has an effect in the cell and that mediates the, the benefit. And probably what happened was we were kind of working in these model systems where we had um, limb stiffness and what we could see is it caused relaxation. And what we thought it had to be doing, it had to be controlling how nerves fire. And indeed that actually was shown to be the, the case. So what happens is there's a natural system so you've probably heard of um, morphine. Yes. And you've heard of endorphins, yeah? Yes. So with cannabis, you have these things called anandamide, which means inner bliss from Sanskrit. And um, they kind of have a, an effect and they're the one things that work on the can these cannabis receptors. And what we kind of found out was essentially that these molecules are involved in nerve transmitting mission. And so what happens when a nerve kind of fires, um, it gives a signal across to the other nerve. So essentially the nerve impulses go from one nerve and then jump to the next nerve. Now in disease, what happens is you get too much excitation going along. And as a consequence of that, you start to release these natural cannabis-like molecules that then act on the cannabis receptors and it basically quiets the nerve down. And so what it does is it just kind of dampens things down and that's kind of essentially what it does is it, it just kind of kind of relaxes the nerve to some extent and th and that's exactly what it does so it's a simple bit of biology um that it just so happens that the cannabis plant kind of kind of exploits to some extent um and of course because the the receptor that controls the the nerve function is is it found everywhere throughout the the brain and that's why it can do good things and bad things so maybe if it binds to uh, say a back bit of your brain it controls your movement if it uh, binds to this frontal bit it, it maybe controls more of your, your kind of emotions and your cognitive processes and that's why you can get kind of you know good things and you can also get bad things so it's it's a balance and that's kind of what we we, we were kind of working on is how do you um push the balance in favor of good things as, and avoiding the, you know, the, the adverse effects, because some people clearly don't like the kind of the high and so obviously some people like it and it's part of the therapy for some people. It may be what allows somebody to get to a good night's sleep. You mm -hmm. know, so, um, you know, it's, wow. it's context, but it's all based on a simple biology. And of course, my job is really to try and understand the biology because if we can understand the biology, um, 
A, we could actually say, well, we don't need a cannabis plant. We can do uh, make a synthetic agent that just takes us away completely away from the recreational issues and the um, Ill illegal illegality of it. So, you know, it's not my job to kind of worry about that thing. My job is really to worry about the biology. And if I can understand how it works, I can also try and improve things. And that's kind of, you know, one of the things we, we did is we, we tried to take the high out of cannabis. And, um, and in doing so, we kind of un uncovered an, another bit of biology, which um, may, be, may be useful for not only MS, but in other conditions as well. So it's, it's all about exploring kind of science um, yeah. and in the process, hopefully helping um, people with, um, you know, different conditions. So, you know, what we want to do is try and learn what we can. Yes. So that's kind of one part of what we do. And then, you know, we control the immune system. So you have the uh, disease modifying treatments that um, are available um, throughout the world. Um, obviously, very expensive drugs. Um, but we, obviously we work on them and we try and uh, try and understand how they work um, because again, you can, you can make things better because it's all a balance between effect versus side effect. And if you can, you know, really understand how the drugs work, then, um, then you can make things better. You know, and that's kind of some of the things I've been doing and you, ha you just have to change your opinions as, as time goes by. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes you have these eureka moments and that you go, uh, well, this, this, this is how these drugs are working. And, I, you know, I had one of those, believe it or not. Mm. Um, you know, I was supposed to go to um, Portugal to talk about um, um, how MS drugs work. And, and my friend uh, gave, or my colleague who was invited couldn't go. So he said, well, here's my, my slide deck. Um, the 70 slides explain it. And I went, I can't do it in 20 minutes. So um, it made me think. And actually, um, I came up with an idea, well, actually, the drugs are working in a probably a different way to how we think they're working. And if that's true, then actually, it makes it a lot simpler. Because what I would argue is for many of the MS drugs, actually, they may all work the same way. Um, and the difference being is that some are more effective than others, and some are more convenient than others. Um, and so it's a, um, a, a balance between effect and, and side effect to some extent. So it's, it's if you're thinking, you know, you know how they work, then you could say, well, maybe these are the obvious choices for me to, to try. And mm -hmm. kind of, um, obviously, that's not my job to tell people what, what right. they should try, but it's my job to try and work out um, how they are working. Because obviously, yeah. if we're spending a lot of time um, removing certain parts of your immune system and that's not necessary then obviously exposes you to risk of infections which you know you don't want mm -hmm. so kind of that's some of the things we do yeah I think that's fascinating I was one of those kids where for my birthday gifts and Christmas gifts I would get science experiments and I thought it was just so cool and mm -hmm. then I was a biology major in undergraduate schooling so I just find all of this so fascinating it's really interesting to me that you can modify cannabis to target different parts of your brain. As you said, the front part, more emotional, the back part, more movement. So that is just so interesting. Well, that's, 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 I think with cannabis, it's much more difficult to do that because it, what it does is it goes everywhere. And it, so it goes into the bits in the front bit of your brain 
and into the back of your brain. And, and so that's why it can do good and bad things at the same time. But what you want to be able to do is to learn how to switch those bits at the back and those bits at the front on and off. And gotcha. that's kind of, kind of, that's how you kind of improve the side effect and, re, and, and reduce the, sorry, yes. reduce the side effect and improve, improve the effect. Right. So can you tell us a little bit first about what is remyelination? And then I want to get into where are we at with research for remyelination? Because this okay. would be huge for people with MS. Okay. So before I talk about remyelination, I suppose the first thing I need to just say is what, what is myelin? And, and myelin is essentially a, a fatty protein. And if you've got your nerve, it's the insulation of the nerve. And the way that a nerve sends a signal is it moves um, kind of chemicals from inside the cell to the outside of the cell. And these have an electric charge. Um, and then, the, so what the myelin does is it kind of insulates the nerve. And so what happens is the electric charge jumps from one kind of a bit of myelin to the next. And it does it really, really fast. So it goes like the train of a, a speed of a Japanese bullet train. So it goes really fast. And if you don't have myelin on, it, it, the nerve impulses move very slowly. Um, so that's kind of what is the function of, of myelin. Is it allows you to kind of have complex um, nervous um, activations uh, and, and for it to occur very quickly. Now, what we believe in multiple sclerosis is that the um, target for the disease um, is the myelin-forming cell, which in the um, brain is called the oligodendrocyte. And the oligodendrocyte, um, it will kind of cause, create myelin on nerve cells. And one oligodendrocyte myelinates many, many different nerve cells. And so what happens is if you lose that oligodendrocyte, it removes the myelin from lots and lots of different nerve cells, which means the message can kind of electrical message can jump across the different nerves. And so things don't get go coordinated. And when the nerve impulses aren't coordinated, that's when you start to get signs and symptoms. So clearly what you want to do is if you've lost your myelin, because that's a problem of, of the MS, you want to th try think of ways to get the myelin back on. And that's what you call remyelination. So, so there's myelination, which happens, you know, from birth, when, when you kind of uh, are kind of made, you myelinate your nerves, and that, that's kind of developmental myelination. And then you've got the pathological um, remyelination when you get um, attack within multiple sclerosis now what we think of course happens is that there is repair and if you look um even in people who are very old you still see that there is brain repair but with time the rep repair gets um less effective and of course if you don't get repair then of course you get signs and symptoms and the other problem there is is because um the nerve nerves actually take up most of the energy of the body so about 20 percent of of the energy that you create in your body is used by your nervous system and and to move nerve impulses uh, requires energy and um if you lose the myelin it, it requires a lot lot more energy for the nerve impulse to be transmitted 
And sometimes that can actually cause the cells to conk out. You know, they, they can't create enough energy. And if they can't create enough energy, then they die. And therefore, that is a problem. So actually, by not having your myelin, you may get nerve loss. And of course, with the central nervous system, which is the brain and your spinal cord, once the nerve is lost, it doesn't um, generally repair. There are a couple of weird exceptions, but the simple rule is that they don't repair. So once it's lost, it's lost. So first thing is when we think about um, our approaches to MS, our approach is stop the damage because that's the easiest thing to do. Mm -hmm. If you don't have damage, you don't have demyelination. You don't need to remyelinate. Now, is that, other, oh, sorry to interrupt you. Is that one reason why fatigue is so prevalent in MS? Because it takes a lot of effort for those neural impulses to be sent to muscles? I think, I think yes, probably. I mean, fatigue is the thing that is so, so common. Uh, and it's a, mo a very, you know, disabling symptom, but we know very little about it. It's very difficult for us to know what, what, what it is. I think some of it is obviously uh, an inflammatory response occurring in, in your brain, which shouldn't be there. But I think you're right. I think some of it is actually, it just takes a lot of energy and it's very draining. And the more damage you have in a pathway, the more energy um, it takes. And, and therefore you're going to be kind of whacked out by doing kind of, you know, simple tax for maybe, you know, um, right. you know, and, and, you know, I, I actually believe it. I was on a, a like a, a dancing show once with a, one of our patients uh, and they were doing dancing and it was basically, they got so tired just actually physically doing the dancing was just because it was so draining for them. Yes. So, you know, not having, having the, um, and the, the, the myelin on is, is requires a lot of energy gotcha. and, and that's, and that's kind of also potentially one solution. If we're thinking about trying to repair is, you know, we can think about trying to give more energy back to the nerves. And because if we keep them energized, then um, they're less likely to, to kind of conk out. Oh, so, you know, so that's kind of, cause that's kind of one kind of thought about how you, you, you keep yeah. nerves going for longer. So there might be other ways. So one way, of course, which is what we're talking about now is how, if possible, if we can add myelin back, but yeah. if not, maybe there are other ways where we can energize the nerves. Yeah. Very cool. Yes. So, so our kind of, our kind of our view is we kind of have like a, um, you know, stop the inflammation, um, save the nerves that are there, which may be, you know, giving them energy, um, and then causing the repair now clearly there in in terms of the repair what we want to do is to get the myelin forming cells to make new myelin so there are kind of different ways of doing that and i guess we've got different levels of what i call science fiction so i'm sure you're all aware of stem cells it's kind of the buzzword so you know a stem cell potentially can make any other cell in the body and of course it is possible to, to, to make a cell to make myelin. So that's one possible, uh, a possibility. And so, you know, that's a view of, of what we can do is we can give um, stem cells and they will turn into myelinating cells. So that is one approach to remyelination. And there are certainly, there are places um, throughout the world that are actually doing that. So what you can do is you can take somebody's, um, 
cells. So now you can do it for anybody, uh, any cell, to be honest. You know, historically, um, you know, people would take things from kind of embryonic things, which obviously has a, a problem for certain people in terms of their religion, for example. Whereas now you can actually just do it from any cell and you can actually reprogram the cell to actually become a stem cell so it can make any of the different um, um, cell types. Now, the problem, of course, is for MS is um, A, you've got to get the cells into the brain. And so the question is, is how do you do that? So can you, can you inject them into the blood and hopefully they traffic in? Or do you have to inject them individually in? And now the problem there is with MS is generally the 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 disease targets lots of bits of the brain so you you'd have to do it in many different places and that is part of its problem and obviously the problem is if you get it in how far can the, the cells travel um so we can do things in like mice very easily but a mouse brain is very tiny compared to a, a human brain which is much bigger and so right. cells have to travel a lot further so that's kind of one approach that um you know, there are many different groups around the world doing mm -hmm. um, with various levels of success. Now, I think, you know, it is, um, in my mind, a bit science fiction because we don't know, we don't know enough um, at the moment. Because the thing is, I can give you a, a, a stem cell, but how do I make it turn into a myelinating cell? And therefore, it's, it's difficult because you've got to make... Um, give the cues for those cells to, to change into the right thing, because what you don't want to happen is for them to change into something that you don't want. Mm -hmm. And that happened in some of the early studies where actually they turned into dividing cells and, and, and some people got cancers. So, you know, we've got to be ensure whatever we do is safe. Hey guys, it's me again. I wanted to take a brief moment to let you know that if you're enjoying this information and you're interested in staying up to date with other areas of MS research, you should consider joining my online MS wellness program, The Missing Link. It's filled with tons of MS-specific exercises to help with mobility, strength, and activities like stair climbing, getting in and out of your car, standing up from the floor, you name it. In addition to these exercises, you get access to top MS experts like David Baker, as we're hearing from today, as well as Dr. Aaron Boster, Matt Embry, Terry Walls, and so many more. They answer your individual questions as well as giving you updates in their field of expertise. If you want more information, go to missinglink.com or check the show notes for a behind the scenes look into the program. All right, let's dive back in. So that approach is, is moving. It's moving very slowly. Um, and probably in reality, it will be developed in, in other conditions first. Um, probably spinal cord injury um, is, is probably a, an easy one to do because you haven't got the, um, the problem of an ongoing uh, inflammation, you know, which happens in MS. So in MS, you've got to control that. Otherwise, you kind of um, do the repair, but then the damage will occur again. So you've right. got to do that. So that's kind of one approach. Mm -hmm. Now, the other approach um, is then to say, well, actually, um, we can get the cells that normally make myelin to, to make new myelin. So 
the uh, oligodendrocytes which make the, the, the myelin come from a, a precursor cell called oligodendrocyte precursor cells, baby, oligodendrocyte babies, let's call them. And, and what, you can, what you can see is actually this, they're there in NS, but they're not turning in to um, myelinating oligodendrocytes. And so what it tells us is there's something about the environment that isn't quite conducive to make these young oligodendrocytes become mm -hmm. old ones and, and start to myelin. And if that's true, just putting a, a, a stem cell in, it may get stuck in the same place. So without understanding those cues, um, you, you don't know what to do. So it may be simpler in a sense to give a chemical stimulus to get the young uh, oligodendrocytes turning and to make uh, new myelin. And that means you can just kind of give it as a pill, it'll go all around the brain and, and therefore you don't have to worry about whether, you know, where the lesions are, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it can be that it could be in many different places. So all you're doing is you give uh, the stimulus and um, then off you go. Now, I think in the last few years, um, we've actually come up with probably more targets than we can handle. Um, so it's very clear that we can, um, in, in an experimental system, we can take those immature cells and we can make them um, mature and, and we can make them make myelin. And so it's a question of, you know, selecting which ones you want to try first. So some of those drugs have been tried and we're getting kind of a hint of efficacy with some of them. Mm. Now, what we also kind of um, kind of have learned, um, which is actually something we kind of should all know that basically as we get older, we don't repair very well. Right. And um, so one of the problems with kind of age is as you don't get old, as you get older, you don't repair. Um, and that's probably why one of the reasons with COVID-19, for example, your immune system gets old and it doesn't fight the virus off as, as well as it should do if you were young. And that's why kids do okay and, and old people, unfortunately, don't do quite so well. That's also true for myelin and myelin repair. And you've got to be kind of, the younger you are, the more likely you are to repair. So as you get older, your capacity re repair um, diminishes. So mm -hmm. ideally, if you're thinking about, you know, um, causing remyelination, you'd, you'd like to actually start early in, in younger people because they've got more of a capacity to repair. Now, that kind of is a bit of a bad news if you're a bit older like me. Right. But the good news is um, they've actually found some switches that... Um, that actually make the uh, old young. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And actually one of the kind of the drugs that they um, uh, know that does this is actually a, a common drug that's used in, in old people. Um, and it's a, a, a drug that's used in type two diabetes. And this drug is called metformin. And oh, what it seems to do is, is it seems to make the, um, the macrophages, these, these are cells that have, of the immune system that engulf things. And to, to, to repair, what you've got to do is you've got to kind of clear up the damage first. 
without clearing up the damage, you can't actually repair. So you have to have these cells go in and remove all, all the damage. And if they're old, they can't do it very well. So if you can make them younger, then they actually start to phagocytose a lot better. Um, and, um, and also the uh, oligodendrocytes, as they get old, they don't make um, uh, myelin quite so well. So if you're uh, younger, then you do it better. So if you can make the old cells young, then um, um, it's, it's possible. Now, we kind of got a, an idea um, of, of how that worked by some kind of really horrible experiments, um, <laughs> uh, which they don't do in the UK. They did, actually did it in the States because you weren't allowed to do it in the, U, in, in the UK. But what they did is they stitched two mice together uh, one was young and one was old. Um, and basically what they did is they, they actually um, linked up the, the blood system of the young into the, old, uh, into the old mouse. And what they could see, there was something in the blood of the young uh, animal that was actually making the old young. And, wow. and the old, old, old kind of animals would then start to repair. So they kind of learned what some of the factors are. And actually it's not just um, the, the, the macrophages, there's also things that affect the nerves, which are different things. But what they found is one of these master switches is uh, controlled by this drug called metformin. So the idea would be that if you take this um, kind of drug, which is used in, in diabetic people, mm -hmm. then um, you then make the uh, macrophages young, you make the oligodendrocytes young, and then you give the uh, myelin repair drugs as well. And therefore you've now got a young system to actually cause the repair. So that's kind of the idea that's kind of surfaced in the last um, couple of years. And, um, and that so- That sounds very exciting. That's, well, it that is exciting. That sounds like big news. <laughs> Yeah, well, it is exciting. And I think there's some mileage in it. And, and, and the reason why I say that is, again, um, we can actually look at COVID-19, for example. So um, when COVID-19 struck, it was like, oh, if you've got diabetes, you're a much higher risk of, of, of COVID-19. Now, if what I was saying was true, that the, um, the, the metformin uh, makes your macrophages young, you should be able to get rid of the virus and you should do better. And so actually... There's data there that if you're actually diabetic on metformin, you do better than if you're not on metformin. So that suggests there is maybe some mileage in this idea. So of course, the only way to, to do that is you've got to do an experiment. So um, that's exactly what's being done. So um, when you, uh, you have to decide which myelination drug um, and there's some group, a grouping in Cambridge, they kind of picked on one. Uh, there's a, some groups in the States on the West Coast, they picked a different one. Now, what happened was both of them got a, an indication that there's some, there's some benefit, but they didn't have the young um, macrophages at present. Now, one of the drugs in Cambridge, um, it showed side effects and therefore they decided that they'd kind of get rid of it for the next studies. But what it did show them is that they did see uh, indications of repair. Mm -hmm. 
And the way that they did that is they could see um, in your visual system, because the only bit of your brain that is accessible to the outside is your eyes. So your eyes are part of your central nervous system. So it's the window to the brain. And what you can do in, in, in the eyes is you can monitor nerve function and how nerves um, transmit. So what you can do is you can flash a picture in somebody's face and you can measure the nerve impulses on the brain. Um, and what happens when you have a demyelination, um, it's slower. So what you can do is if you then re cause repair, then all of a sudden it becomes quicker. And that's exactly what they found with this drug. So the idea now is now they've got a readout about how they can show that repair is occurring. And the plan is now is to mix uh, a remyelinating drug that was originally identified in kind of San Francisco with this metformin, which is the rejuvenating drug. And then the hope is um, that we will start to see repair. Now, this would have started two years ago. Um, uh, unfortunately, you all know what's happened in the, in the inter interim. So uh, I understand the plan now is for it to start in February in 2022. So it's all funded. There's a whole trial all, all um, raring to go. And it's a question now, um, for, for just to recruit the, the patients so mm. it's going to be 50 people um on um kind of the active comparator and 50 people um kind of not um it's it's largely going to be all done in in cambridge gotcha. um, um so can someone submit an application to be part of this research or have they already chosen they haven't chosen them yet but you, you the problem is 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 because it's kind of intensive that you'd have to be monitored you have you'd have to go there apparently eight times so if you're living in california unless you've got loads of cash and a and a jumbo jet handy it's going to be a bit more difficult but nevertheless i think um you know we'll see what happens there now yeah. there is also another um studies that is occurring in in the uk that is planned it's called octopus and the idea is um, normally when people do trials, they do one drug and then they test it. And then if it works, then they'll go on and do the next trial and then they'll try another drug. So the idea here is that you're going to put lots of different arms in the trial. And as one drops out, you will put another one in. Uh, and as one succeeds and you'll move it forward. So the idea is it will push it uh, forward quicker. Now I not, 100% uh, sure that um, I know the drugs, but I think these rejuvenating drugs will be used in those trials as well, but with a different type of um, drug. And this one is there to actually kind of save the nerves a lot better. So it will affect oh. on kind of the nervous energy, etc. So that's kind of another kind of study. So at the moment, there's a really big push, obviously, to think about what are the drivers for um, progression? Uh, and so that's been the focus of, of a lot of people for a lot, a lot of time. The difficulty is, is how to show it and how to show it quickly. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, the trials are very slow. Right. Um, so how long would you, sorry, how long would you anticipate 
it would take to at least know, maybe not a final answer, but yeah. how it's going and will this move on to the next phase? Well, I think, I think the, um, the, the one with, with the Cambridge thing, I think it probably occurs pretty quickly, probably within oh. six months, 12 months. Nice. Um, you know, because if, 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 if you kind of turn a thing on, then it should it kind of should work relatively quickly. Um, I think for the, 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 well, again, it depends on the, on the trial. So if you do a thing, what we call a, a phase two, which is the first study in kind of people with, with a condition, you can look for outcomes that are like a, a biomarker, like for if you had a, a drug, you look for MRI lesions. But if you then take it on further in what we call a phase three trial, is it has to have a clinical outcome. And therefore, um, you know, if you're looking at kind of disease progression, um, you know, you've got to wait for, you know, the people who are on, a, on the control to kind of worsen. And therefore, it, sometimes it could take a long time. Uh, yes. you know, and that's the problem. So you can get an idea quickly. But actually, if it's got to have a clinical outcome, which it has to for the FDA or the EMA to approve a drug, it has to have a clinical outcome. And therefore, by its nature, it's going to take um, some time to read out because um, if the repair is quick, then obviously it would, would be OK. But if it's a slow process, then, you know, it's going to take time. And I think maybe for repair, maybe it will occur a bit quicker, but we certainly know for slowing kind of nerve damage, we know that process takes, is very, very slow because, you know, you, if you're going to deteriorate, you deteriorate, you know, very slowly over a number of years. So if you're thinking about the trials, then, um, you know, the trials kind of need to be either very large or, or, or quite long. You know, and also, that's been the key, you know. Yeah. It also seems to me like it might be beneficial if the trials actually included people with MS who have a progressive form, which normally trials are mm. for relapsing remitting. Do you know if they are including progressive MS? Oh, God, yes, 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 yes. Um, so I think, you know, obviously the, the pharmaceutical industry have, have obviously focused on relapsing disease. And we can see, we can see uh, efficacy of a drug within six months and that we can get a clinical outcome within a year. So we know how to show those drugs work very quickly. Um, but clearly what we, what we want to do is, is focus our attention where there is an unmet need. And that's clearly people who've got progressive disease. We want to get um, treatments for that part of disease. Now, certainly in the US, um, there are um, drugs that are um, surfacing that um, will be active to some extent. So I think our view is that kind of MS is kind of one disease process. It starts from the beginning and it's still there at kind of at the end. So there's an inflammation that we need to deal with right from the beginning and we need to deal with it right at the end. Now, some people think it's a two-stage process that, you know, it's inflammatory and then you know, there's a nerve damaging effect. Now, we believe they occur side by side and one probably programs the other. So um, we've got good at, at blocking the things that drive the progression, but we're not so good at things that, um, you know, once the progression has started, that we, mm. we can turn that off. Right. So um, that's the key. And that's where, you know, we've been, we've been focusing on that for a number of years. We have had some 
some success, but um, they're not kind of, the studies we've done have been quite small scale um, and it's kind of, it needs to be expanded up. Um, and you have a blog as well, correct? Where people yep. can find the research that you're doing. Can you let our listeners know how they can keep up to date with that? Yeah, so we have um, a research blog. So again, it was started off by our clinical colleagues. You know, they were going to clinic and they'd be saying the same information. Now, tell me about stem cells. So you, you get bored, you know, when you, once you've told somebody about a hundred times. Right. So the idea is, was well, we'll put um, the information out online. And the other thing that was important we felt was that clearly, you know, people are in desperate need of treatments and they're willing to try. Um, many different things um, and obviously what we, we need to sort of be in that space to say well okay but you need to make sure it's safe and maybe we can say well you know it's not safe or let's try and look at the science does it make sense um, so you know you may go into alternative treatments but you go with your eyes open so you know if because many of these things you know it's a question of they're taking people's money and so, you know, you could, it's buyer beware to some extent. So, um, and that happened with, particularly with um, CCSVI. So I don't know if you know, this is where basically people thought that the, there were thinning in blood vessels. And what you could do is you could use a balloon to open the blood vessel and that would get oxygen into the brain. And that, that would be the solution for MS. And there was kind of um, a scientific paper suggesting some benefit. And then, what happens with kind of fad science to some extent is people can get access to the treatment without consulting their neurologists and therefore um, they will do things. And of course, then they feel there's a conspiracy that the neurologists aren't very happy. Um, and so they're, 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 they're trying to build up barriers to say, well, this stuff doesn't work. And really what the, the, the neurologists would argue is we just need an evidence base. What happened with this, um, this CCSVI is it took hold very quickly because it, it transmitted amongst the patient groups via social media um, and the neurologists weren't in that space and we couldn't counter that type of information very quickly. And mm -hmm. therefore people spent thousands and thousands of dollars doing these procedures with no evidence that it was of any, any benefit. Just like people spend a lot of money, you know, doing certain types of stem cell therapy without any evidence that it's, it works and it's safe. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the idea with a blog is we could, you know, have us have a um, a place where you could get reliable information. So what we essentially do each day is we just go through the literature, we see what uh, is being um, said. We'll do kind of scientific process. We'll try and explain it, and then occasionally, obviously, the clinicians will talk about um, clinical problems and give you practical solutions. But the important thing is there's like a Q&A situation. So there is a potential for you to ask questions. Uh, we won't kind of give personal uh, in information, but we'll give generic information that is relevant to the question that you can ask. So if you need to ask a question, ask it in a non-personal way. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, I can't guarantee you'll get answered because I'm not a clinician, but mm -hmm. um, some of them will. And then you just have to be persistent and then uh, Great. do that. So you can do that. And can you share the website? I will put the website in our yeah. show notes as so, well. So the, the website, it's got a long name, but the simple one is it's www.ms-res.org. 
So can we do the MS dash rest dog? Thank you so much. I have learned so much from this. I do have one final question. So you mentioned metformin as one of the medications. You also mentioned the clinical trial called octopus. Is there any other names, whether it's a clinical study or a medication that you can mention that's being researched just in case anyone wants to stay up to date and do their own research on it? Well, in terms of the trials, I mean, there's a place called clinicaltrial.gov in the States, and every single trial that occurs in humans has to be registered now. And therefore, you can put in multiple sclerosis, um, and then it will tell you what trials uh, are recruiting, and it'll tell you where they're occurring, and it'll tell you who are doing them. So it allows you actually then to contact the the center to... um, to say, well, I'd like to, you know, participate if I can. And I think um, also the MS societies, so you've got the NMSS um, in, in the US, you've got the Canadian MS Society, obviously the Australians, British, et cetera. And they will um, also um, give you information about trials. Um, in terms of progressive trials, I mean, um, there are different ones ongoing. There's one in the States, called MS Sprint, which was successful. I, and the question is, is, I don't know where the next stage is. Um, it, I saw even some data today showing that it, it did affect nerve loss and slowed nerve loss down. So um, there's a drug on trial in that study. We're doing another one in, in the UK um, on statins, which is obviously a drug that affects cholesterol. But you know, actually, when you look, um, cholesterol pathways are actually instrumental in kind of damage in, in Alzheimer's as well as in MS as well. So, you know, there may be things we can learn from different diseases as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, well, it sounds like there's many different options, which is great. It's not like all of yeah. everyone's hope is on this one drug or one clinical trial. No, I mean, I think the thing is, obviously I have to be honest that, you know, it, it's slow before they, they will um, become kind of drugs. So the, the best way to get an option to access them is to be willing to kind of be participate in a in a trial because mm-hmm. you know that that's years ahead of of them being approved drugs so right. again it just depends on looking at your local ms centers because and see see what trials they're doing mm-hmm. um Yes, that's so important. David, thank you so much for being here. I loved being able to just get a a peek inside your brain as to how all of this is working and what's coming out. So thank you so much for sharing this with us. No problem. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you loved this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.